Welcome to the Movie Brew, a podcast about film and filmmakers. I'm, I'm, ref- I'm not saying British anymore because we've just we haven't done a British just film in so way long. Off that track. <laughs> it's just yeah. Um, how you doing, mate? You all right? I'm all right. I'm good. Um, I haven't even introduced you, but I'm just asking how you are. Yeah, well, you know, any anyone worth their salt knows this voice. It's all good. <laughs> Um, um, yeah, no, it's all good. The uh, pubs are open on the weekend. So that's exciting. That's something to look you, forward to. Have you ventured out? Have you gone out? Have you gone to see I mean, anything yet? Not really, but that's got less to do with lockdown and more to do with who I am as a human. So <laughs> it's, it didn't really change a lot for me, to be honest. It just meant I didn't have to get the train to work. So that was nice. Yeah. Uh, how Fair about enough. you? Uh, no, not ventured into a pub. A little bit of anxiety about the whole thing, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not gonna, not gonna do that. But I am, yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host Lester Gartland. Um, but I wanted to do some. We're gonna do something a bit different this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you can probably see from the title, um, we wanted to um take a break. And you might have seen from our social media, we posted about this a little bit as well. Um, we were taking a break, wanted to take a break from just kind of doing the usual, go through a couple of films and talking about what we liked and didn't like about them, having a conversation. And we wanted to just kind of like really see if we could find films and documentaries and things that really could that, to educate us because we wanted to educate ourselves about everything that's going on at the moment. And so for that reason, this episode is going to be a little bit different and it's probably going to end up being a two-parter. So yeah, so we're doing an episode on films that have taught us about racism and we wanted to talk about some documentaries that we've checked out, wanted to look into certain things, talk about some films. I'm going to do some editing on my end and kind of find some clips and stuff that I think are useful to play in. Uh, playing the episode but yeah i just felt weird about just keep going talking about as if things are normal yeah and not not talk about this because yeah. it's well, so important yeah because um, and we actually have an, an episode in the chamber that we're waiting to, to fire off but we just thought yeah it would be really weird to just kind of send that out and not talk about all this craziness that's uh kicking up yet again in the in the US um it would kind of be worse to not talk about it at all and just carry on talking about films that we had a good time watching and just like you know I do some philosophical rant and the the usual <laughs> kind of yeah. thing like that but so we thought that's probably not very appropriate at the moment so we we actually kind of took some time away uh yeah Put, put some put some effort into kind of educating ourselves um, in a way I didn't realize actually. And I, I guess we'll get into this a bit more, but I was saying to you when we were watching one of these documentaries that I feel like I've been slightly failed by the education system on this mm-hmm. on this part. And I'm you know we live in Britain, so it's it's a bit different here. But you know we should still know more about this than than we probably do uh, learn at school. So yeah, that's that's why it's been a while, and uh, yeah, it's it's an issue that, that matters, and we just thought we should probably address that. Yeah, absolutely, totally, totally with you on that, man. And I've been kind of obsessively just doing what I can to 
um, digest as much information as possible, be that through films or like audiobooks and books and stuff. And, you, you know, like the UK, we're not innocent. And we do have a history yeah. of imperialism and colonialism and a lot of stuff that isn't really, that we never really learn about and talk about in school. So that's why it's really important that we have these honest conversations, look at resources that we can talk about where we as a populace can kind of educate ourselves mm. and look for further information. And that's what this episode is about. So if you're looking for, you know, sort of, resources to kind of look at um to educate yourself and learn more about this issue then that's what that's what this episode is basically here for and i just i didn't really feel comfortable putting out a normal episode that we have in the bank without addressing this yeah first yeah i just thought that was normal there's also going to be some link in the show notes for some anti-racism resources in terms of books articles um and also films and documentaries and stuff that you can check out um which yeah, which is going to be useful for for you guys. But um, so the first thing I want to talk about, not necessarily just just about the documentary, but I really want to talk about James Baldwin because mm-hmm. we both saw this first. Um, we saw this documentary of "I'm Not Your ne- Negro" by um Raoul Peck, and I had no idea who James Baldwin was. No, um, me neither. No education in terms of uh in terms of who he was his writing and stuff in this uh, in the civil rights movement and i found myself absolutely enraptured and fascinated with the way this person could capture an audience and the way he phrases sentences but everything he speaks it's so eloquent but theatrical mm-hmm. and it's a way of just capturing people who may have a completely different opinion to the stuff that he's saying, but he's able to captivate a white audience at this time of people that to be receptive to certain ideas that they wouldn't just normally just kind of write off if they were coming out of someone else's mouth, like a Malcolm X character or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I just found it. I just found it. It's kind of great. I don't know. It's, 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 I know you've got some stuff you want to say about James Baldwin, man. So I'll, I'll just, yeah. yeah, I'll let you go with with that. Well, um, well, let's lay the foundation because I, I imagine most of our listeners are in the UK as well, and I imagine they probably don't know much about him either. So he, um, James Baldwin, was an author and a playwright, and um, this film is um based on a letter that he wrote to his literary agent describing his next project uh which was called remember this house and it um is a personal account of the lives and the assassinations of his close friends which were megrovers malcolm x and martin luther king jr um and there was only 30 completed pages left by at the time of his death which i think was in the late 80s so this film kind of picks that up um, there's like direct quotes from him throughout it. It just follows it along. Um, and it uses, um, does it use like, I don't know the the word to describe, but I know it's not found footage cause that's what they, that's like, <laughs> it's like player wish project and stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, they're using, um, yeah, it's collected footage from collected interviews, footage. Yeah. yeah um, and uh, just talks and stuff that's happened. They basically optioned the rights to to all of his interviews and all of his um, appearances on TV and stuff. Yeah, and, that's, and yeah. Um, cut that together with excerpts of 
B uh, B roll where they're just kind of showing footage from nowadays mm-hmm. uh, in context with what you know with what um, sort of James Baldwin's talking about and saying, along with excerpts of this manuscript that Samuel L. Jackson is reading about remember this house from yeah. from that where he's kind of narrating the process and the story and certain things and Samuel L. Jackson does a really good. Uh, kind of narration through through it's, this. He kind it's of, really easy to forget that it's Samuel Jackson. Yeah, he really captures the spirit of yeah. James Baldwin and the way that he's kind of uh, reading all this stuff. And this is coming from two guys that never knew who James Baldwin was uh, until we saw the documentary and then subsequently just became fascinated with the man and all of his ideas. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, there was a real, the spirit of this kind of musicality to his voice when he's talking, although Sam L. Jackson does it in a much lo- kind of lower register, it's, it's still got that spirit in yeah. the, in the way that he's talking. It's, I just, yeah. Yeah. He's great. not doing his usual, you know, Sam Jackson, you know, same motherfucker all the time. And, you know, he's, he's really, yeah, carrying the spirit on through it, which is, I mean, he just did a really good job. I, I mean, I literally forgot it was him until the credits hit. And I was like, oh, yeah, it was Samuel Jackson. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, Raul Pet did a great job of directing it and stuff. But I mean, I'm I'm not really here to talk about like the the film's merits. I didn't really want to talk about and And because these are documentaries, it's harder yeah. to, you know, kind of debate that. Um, yeah, I don't really know how you critique it directorial style for a documentary you know yeah though i mean you can talk a little bit about the way it's edited and the way that these things are constructed together to make that message and i and it is done competently and well Mm -hmm. but i i feel like the main things to take away from all of these films that we're going to talk about today is just the messages behind what these people are saying and what who they are and what they what they stood for because it's really important that we learn about them and that we know that these resources are out there yeah um so yeah, so this for viewers in the UK um, aired on, uh, I believe it was BBC a couple of days ago. So it is available on oh, iPlayer okay. for the rest of the month. If you oh, good. Uh, check it out, um, within uh, aired on the last week. So yeah, you can definitely check it out uh, for free there. Um, so yeah, look at that and look into that. But yeah, is there anything else you want to kind of talk about with James Baldwin or anything else you want to kind of? before we move on and talk about uh, a bit more about the film. So, I mean, like, like you, I was kind of just, um, I suppose just captivated by the way he speaks. And it was interesting because he was kind of a go between for, um, white Americans and, and the black Americans who were maybe at the forefront of, of the civil rights movement who would have been seen perhaps as like dangerous revolutionaries or something, but because he was good friends with them, but he was also an author in his own right. And, uh, white people kind of, um, recognized that and they already had a respect for him. So he was kind of meeting with, um, you know, political figures and stuff to talk about these things as well, which is incredible. Um, but yeah, just the way that he puts his points across. So, plainly and so um like there's there's no arguing it he's not saying anything radical but he's he's using pure logic with the way that he's coming at things i mean there's even a a bit 
there's a, a scene where he's on a talk show and there's some guy who is like completely against this civil rights movement sitting in a chair next to him. And then after talking to James Baldwin for like three minutes, he's changed his mind. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought that was incredible. I was like, this, you know, that's really really is the power of words working there you know i just had this ability to just absolutely capture um the perspective of his uh counter debaters in Mm. a way that could just really force them to listen in a logical and just understanding way and it's absolutely like it's hopeful and fascinating and also a bit sad to watch now yeah because that that sort of discourse and stuff is not is is not what's happening at the moment it's an outcry after years of rage and you know so it so it, it is it is just a small moment in time but to just look at the way that he is talking to these people mm. it's um it's it's commendable it's 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 awesome so the the clip you're talking about i'm gonna play it in the the show oh perfect yeah i i i got it ready i absolutely loved it and it's um an interview on the dick cavett show um and there's a scholarly person that kind of goes on there um paul weiss he's the philosophy professor at yale at the time i think Mm. And he's debating with Baldwin and he asked the question, why must we always concentrate on color? Uh, He talks about a specific uh, kind of example and saying that he has, uh, he is a, he is a kind of scholar has more in common with a black scholar than he does a white person who hates scholarship. And he points to Baldwin at this point and says, and you have more in common with a white writer uh, or an author than someone, than a black person who hates literature. There are other ways of connecting men, he says. Mm. And Baldwin's response here, it perfectly encapsulates sort of he a breakdown of institutional and structural racism, but also does it in such a like sort of um, f- almost theatrical way in speaking that is absolutely captivating. And the body, um, like we can't, you know, we can't really describe this without showing you the, the clip in this audio form, but it's essentially the body language of this guy goes from being completely closed off to open and receptive and nodding and understanding throughout everything that Baldwin's saying as he's going on. He draws him in with it. It's yeah, it's incredible the way he draws it. Cause yeah, like he said, he starts off, he's completely turned away. Like his whole body is turned away from Baldwin. Yeah. And sort of after he said like five words, yeah, he's uncrossed his arms, he's uncrossed his legs. He's actually paying attention um yeah it's it's something to it's really is quite something to to witness seeing that clip i thought it was so brilliant. here it is i'm just gonna play it now i'll tell you this when i left this country in 1948 i left this country for one reason only one reason i didn't care where i went i might have gone to hong kong i might have gone to timbuktu i ended up in paris on the streets of paris with 40 dollars in my pocket on the theory that nothing worse could happen to me there than it already happened to me here you talk about making it as a writer by yourself. You had to be able then to turn off all the antenna with which you live because once you turn your back on this society, you may die. You may die. And it's very hard to be a typewriter and concentrate on that if you're afraid of the world around you. The years I lived in Paris did one thing for me. They released me from that particular social terror, which was not the paranoia of my own mind, 
but a real social danger visible in the face of every cop, every boss, everybody. I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. I don't know if white Christians hate Negroes or not, but I know that we have a Christian church which is white and a Christian church which is, which is black. I know, as Malcolm X once put it, that the most segregated hour in American life is high noon on Sunday. That says a great deal for me about a Christian nation. It means that I can't afford to trust most white Christians and certainly cannot trust the Christian church. I don't know whether the labor unions and their bosses really hate me. That doesn't matter, but I know I'm not in their unions. I don't know if the real estate lobby is anything Ooh, against black people, <laughs> but I know the real estate lobbies keep me in the ghetto. I don't know if the, if the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks they give my children to read and the schools that we have to go to. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Yeah, that was, I mean, it's just hearing him talk. Like, he had a background in um, as being a preacher for a while. Uh, before mm-hmm. he became a writer and i feel like you can hear that in the way he speaks and the way that he kind oh, of yeah, yeah it's very emotive yeah yeah he grew critical of the church and of christianity because of its relation with um of its views on um homosexuality but also on uh segregation and racism at the time um mm. so and the civil rights movement. So, so yeah, he left that and then went to kind of focus more on writing and his writing career. And I know that you checked out one of his books, um, yeah, as well. What did you think of it? So, um, yeah. So after seeing this, I was just like, this guy's brilliant. Um, so it was like right after we watched it, I just ordered one of his books. Um, so I read, uh, go tell it on the mountain, which is his first novel. And it's, it's fictional, but it's very heavily based on his childhood growing up in that church community. Right. And um, I can't speak for how close to the truth it is, but I think it's pretty close. Um, but I will just talk about the story. Um, but just remember, it's kind of self-referential, I suppose. Um, but so in the in the book, he's he's growing up, he kind of realizes he his sexuality at a young age, but obviously doesn't tell anyone about it because you know they're in a church community that's that's just no good and his father is a very well respected preacher um but it, it does like a great thing of duality the whole book is is it does a fantastic job of describing duality of everything um so one of the main points of the book is his father is so respected in this church community everyone thinks he's a great man because you know he gets everyone up and dancing at this church you know, everyone's really into his um his what do they call him? His sermons. And um yeah, he just he's a fantastic speaker like that. But you know, in the household, he's actually not a good guy. Um he's been married a couple of times before before he's with uh Baldwin's mother. Um he's not called James Baldwin in the book, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um and he actually had a, a bastard son with, with a, a woman while he was married to one of his previous wives um, that you find out about. Um, I'm also trying to not spoil much in the book. Um, so it kind of goes across that duality really well because um, there's scenes that, that you get, you get the, um, 
the first chapter kind of outlines everything. And the last, all the chapters after that are based on people in this one, this one, uh, this one church sermon, individuals going up to pray at the altar with like the choir singing for them and stuff. And then it kind of goes into their prayer, which I found fascinating because it's, I mean, you, you know, like I, I like to write about dreams and stuff. So that is, you know, pretty much the same thing as far as I'm concerned. Just um, take all your boxes, mate. Just yeah, yeah, it's really, really good. So it goes into that. It goes into these, it, it takes every individual as a chapter and goes into their past, goes into maybe, you know, what they want for the future, um, where they see themselves, what they want to pray for, if they want to help someone out, whatever. Um, that's fantastic. The other bit of uh, incredible duality that that I that really hit me, I think it happens in the first chapter, is it's it's the main character's uh, birthday, and he's not really paid much attention to in the family, but his mother gives him a, you know a small amount of money to says like you know it's your birthday, go out, treat yourself. Yeah, and he goes over to like the white part of town, and he goes into a movie theater. And he just goes and watches a movie um, with, you know, obviously white actors and actresses and surrounded by everyone else in the theatre's white. Um, and no one notices him, which is what he wanted. You know, he didn't want anyone sort of going like, well, what's, what's, this, what's this little black boy doing in here? You know, something horrible like that. Yeah. Um, and then he kind of makes a really good point of, it kind of switches to his future self where he's talking about it. Um, with a with hindsight, and he's saying it's interesting that I didn't feel comfortable enough going into a theatre in my own community because of the connotations that that might have with homosexuality at the time, and that uh, he, I think, I think this really like boils down to how he's such a good middleman between like the white and black communities in America. Is he was accepted in the black community as a black person, but he was accepted in the white community as a homosexual, but. Yeah not a black person. So he had, he had that duality within him the whole time. Yeah. I just found that absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I just thought it was really, really good. Um, but anyway, it's very, very well written book. It's yeah, it's right up my street as I thought it would be. Um, yeah, I just thought that was great. I, he's just got such a, such an interesting way of, he almost kind of removes himself from situations and looks at it completely objectively. Mm-hmm. And then he can like lay it out for people. Yeah. In a way so that maybe they haven't seen before. The great. really the big word in terms of what that comes to mind with James Borden, he is a self-described uh witness and it's a mm. it's a it's a word and term that comes uh, time uh, that returns to us in the film as well. He always described himself as a as a witness to the society um that was kind of unraveling in front of him. He actually yeah. denied the term like a go between between races yeah, and a yeah. spokesperson during yeah, that time because that. he didn't want to be seen as a middleman no. uh, sort of thing. More, more rather, he would rather be seen as a just a witness and mm. to write about the times as um as uh, and saw it as his duty, sort of to to talk about them honestly with removing his kind of personal. Yeah, uh, uh, taken perspective, just being honest as possible, which is really commendable, to be honest. Um, it's incredible to be able to remove the biases from yourself when you've grown up in that kind of an America. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm sure I would have some real hatred in me at that point. 
Um, Definitely. And while we're talking about that kind of America, I want to highlight another clip um, Mm. that I'm going to play. And it's something I absolutely love this time. I think it might be towards the end of the documentary, but it's it's Baldwin talking about the future of America. Mm. And I think it's something that's really relevant uh, to us now. Um, So I'm not going to talk about much. I'm just going to let let it play. Um, but yeah, just, just listen to this guy. I can't be a pessimist because I'm alive. To be a pessimist means that you have agreed that human life is an academic matter. So I'm forced to be an optimist. I'm forced to believe that we can survive whatever we must survive. But the Negro in this country The future of the Negro in this country is precisely as bright or as dark as the future of the country. It is entirely up to the American people and our representatives. It is entirely up to the American people whether or not they're going to face and deal with and embrace this stranger whom they maligned so long. What white people have to do is try to find out in their own hearts why it was necessary to have a nigger in the first place. Because I'm not a nigger. I'm a man. But if you think I'm a nigger, it means you need him. The question you've got to ask yourself, the white population of this country has got to ask itself, north and south, because it's one country, and for a negro, there is no difference in the north and the south. There's just no difference in the way they, in a way, they castrate you. But that's, but the fact of the castration is the American fact. If I'm not the nigger here, and you invented him, you, the white people, invented him, then you've got to find out why. But yeah, so that's, that's, uh, that's, that's what I've got to really say about I'm not your negro and mm. James Baldwin in particular. Um, but yeah, those, yeah, is there anything else you kind of wanted to touch on with this um, sort of film? The only other thing, and it's, it's again just a really astute observation from him that really moved me. Well, yeah, I'd like to talk about this and then I'd like to talk about um, how it changed my perceptions of our education system regarding the civil rights movement as well. Um, But before that, there's just a part where he's um, just, again, just making so much sense (laughs) as he does, but he's talking about why white people needed to invent the image of, you know, the, the criminal, uh, rapacious Negro. And he says, basically, you know, if you didn't, if they didn't invent this weird sort of animalistic figure, they would never be able to justify enslaving these people. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was such a great observation of like, you know, because I mean, we've seen it through, we'll be talking about other stuff throughout these documentaries, but seen it through through the decades of you know um even you know the government kind of criminalizing the image of of uh, black people and things and it's yeah it's kind of uh like a manifestation of of uh your guilt and maybe trying to justify that in a way i just thought that was an incredible view to i mean to really think about why why has this image been created for, you know, for his people, I suppose. Um, and 
you know, what would be, what would be the reasoning behind it? And I think he just kind of hit the nail on the head. And I, it's, it's something I've never thought about it from that angle before. Yeah. With so many of the things that he says and that you kind of, you, I mean, obviously, you know, you know, all this stuff and you know, it's all wrong and stuff, but he comes at it from just such a different angle, which just sheds even more light on what's going on there. And I just, yeah, I just really, really like it. I just thought it was just great. The cl- the clip that people heard in the the one I just played was that him referencing that and saying, "Oh, was you it? Know, yeah, you need <laughs> I done to, goofed. Uh, you need to like the white person needs to figure out why this, you know, yeah. why you created uh, the this this look of the the Negro and the, the black man and, the, and this fear. And once you figure that out, that's when that's when um, we can really talk about progress. Yeah, yeah, yeah." I do. I just love that. I love that clip. Yeah, it's yeah, it's incredible. There's another clip. There's one that you sent me on WhatsApp like weeks ago while we were mm. like still just like dice, like just inhaling any knowledge we could about this man. <laughs> yeah. um, w- there was that one about your progress. Do you remember? Oh, vaguely. Um, if you just vamp for a little bit, I'll see if I I'm can gonna, pull it up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and find it, and then I'm gonna play okay. it. But, but essentially, he's on a talk show, and he's talking about his everything. I think I, I might have sent it to you. I'm not sure, but it's like he he's uh, talking about all of the uh, problems and stuff. And it's an episode. It's an interview that's happened after uh, the events of the film has happened. So it's kind of in the 80s and. Yeah, it's later on, um, isn't it? Later on, he's saying, I've endured this, 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 and this. And so exactly how much time do you oh, that, want yeah. for your yeah, progress? It. Yeah, and I just found that it's just, oh, it's so, so good. What is it you want me to reconcile myself to? I was born here almost 60 years ago. I'm not going to live another 60 years. You always told me it takes time. It's taken my father's time, my mother's time, my uncle's time. My brothers and my sisters' time. My nieces and my nephews' time. How much time do you want for your progress? Yeah, I, yeah, I imagine that clip's probably from the late seventies, probably. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nick, it's exactly that because they're kind of saying, you know, well, you know, progress, blah blah. And he's like, well, it's been thirty, forty years now. Can we, you know, how 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 much time do you need? You know, and it's yeah, it's great. It's really, really good. Exactly. Um, so the only other thing I wanted to kind of touch on, which will kind of, I think, nicely segue us onto the next documentary, because I think we had this, a similar conversation during that one. Mm-hmm. But I was just, I was really, watching this, I was really annoyed that um, in school we covered the civil rights movement. And, it, and from talking to a lot of um, my friends about it since then, it seems like my school actually covered it more comprehensively than a lot of other schools, which is well, yeah. I mean, insane. I talked to you about this in terms of my experience. We didn't do any work on the civil rights movement. In the That's crazy class. to me. I mean, because we did like a whole term on it. Yeah. Um, and I just, I just thought. Well, I, I guess I assumed that you know it's it's important enough that that should be curriculum for every school, but apparently that's not the case. So that's in itself absolutely crazy. But the the thing that I really got really annoyed about it was we basically you learn about um dr martin luther king you learn about malcolm x you learn about the black panthers and they kind of leave it there you know and um 
They don't tell you about James Baldwin. They don't tell you about uh, Stockley Carmichael. Isn't it Carmichael? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Stockley. Yeah. They don't tell you about these these other guys that, um, you know, and uh, that, that's not taking away from the great work that those other people did, but it would be nice to know. It'd be nice to know about all these figures while you're learning about it, you know, because they all have something individual to say that adds to the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just very a, disheartened with that. While we while we kind of uh, kind of transition here, I want to mm. quickly put on a point that's kind of referenced in um, in the next film that we're going to talk about in the Black Power mixtape is that you those people wouldn't exist. You wouldn't have um, you wouldn't you couldn't have Martin Luther King's kind of uh, take on nonviolence without yeah. uh, without people like Stokely Carmichael. Mm-hmm. Um, or kind of Malcolm X calling for change in different ways. It needs to come from both angles because that's when people really that's feel when, the pressure. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, that's that's yeah, when it can't be ignored as well. If it's just one, if it's just one side. Say it's just like Malcolm X calling for like a slightly more violent means of of getting there. Then people can dismiss it. If it's just Martin Luther King being completely um, peaceful about it, then people can just ignore it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, yeah, you, yeah, definitely right about that for sure. It's both sides of a spectrum that needs to be pushed across the same time for people to kind of take in that this is a movement and not yeah. an opinion. It's, yeah. it's something that's people that are calling for change. Um, so that being said, the next film that we're going to talk about is another documentary. In fact, spoiler, they're all documentaries, guys. Um, so the, the next one that we're going to talk about is The Black Power Mixtape, 1967 to 1975, a film by Goran Hugo Olsen. Now, the story of how this film came about um, is quite interesting. It came out in 2011. What happened was there was a group of Swedish filmmakers um, that f- essentially went to kind of document the uh, Black Power movement um, in the late 60s and early 70s. And the a Swedish kind of uh, TV station, 30 years later, found all this footage, edited it together, and then did some interviews with some local, uh, some kind of commentators of the movement at the time, nowadays at the time, putting those clips into context. And that's how we have the Black Power mixtape. So I'm just going to read the synopsis I've got here. Um, so the Black Power mistake, 1967 to 1975, mobilizes a treasure trove of 16 millimeter material shot uh, by Swedish filmmakers after languishing in a basement of a TV station for 30 years into an iris- uh, irresistible mosaic of images, music and narration chronicling the evolution of one nation's most undeniable turning points, the Black Power movement. Featuring candid interviews with the uh, movement's most explosive revolutionary minds, including Angela Davis, Bobby Seale, Stokely Carmichael and Kathleen Cleaver. The film explores the community, people, racial ideas of, uh, and racial ideas of the movement. Music by Questlove and Omdas Keith. Uh, commentary from uh, modern voices, including Erica Badu, Harry Belafonte, Talib Kweli and Melvin Peoples give uh, give the historical footage a fresh sound and make the Black Power mixtape an exhilarating, unprecedented account of American Revolution. Mm. Yeah, I found... um, I know know because they're documentaries, we're not really going to get too too, film critique-y about it. But I found this one 
interesting to watch um sort of more than than a than a normal documentary just because it's such like it's such a frankenstein of a film yeah <laughs> you know and um i just found i found that great cuz you've got this footage just from these swedish guys who went over there to get some footage just for their their um you know their country's tv channel whatever it was i can't remember um and then you've obviously got this footage and and a lot of it is stuff that is very widely spread now because it's such good footage so a lot a lot of the things in there I'm like oh, i've seen this clip i've seen this clip yeah um you, you know i just didn't know that it was by just a bunch like a bunch of swedish people just going to america it's crazy and then you've also got this like yeah new music going over the top and it's it's nice you get kind of a nice spread of generations and their thoughts on it which i thought was really refreshing I think the thing that got it for me was that when you look at a film that's a documentary made in the time that it's talking about, and it's very much of its time, it's 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 like a time capsule. It's like you're mm. taking time out of, um, to of of what you're doing, and you're stepping into this world. What's interesting mm-hmm. about the way this is made is that it is a time capsule taken out of concept uh, context with the benefit of hindsight so what you've got is the time capsule of these people at the time in the movement talking about their experiences and their ideas um these revolutionary ideas but then you've also got these commentators from nowadays talking about these people and the small uh changes that are going on and talking about those moments in context and what that means for people as a whole um Mm. And I found those interviews to be extremely enlightening and yeah. very, yeah, just to give so much context around just the interviews that we're seeing um, and commentating about it. It's, yeah, it's it's so interesting to hear these people that are so clearly influenced by all of the people that we're watching being interviewed, um, yeah. talking about what this particular clip we're watching means for uh, for the movement and for for black people yeah um yeah i just thought it was yeah i I really liked it It it's not it's not as dry as your regular documentary which really um really helped uh i don't you know i'm not usually a a documentary kind of guy unless it's a subject that interests me this does happen to be a subject that interests me so that's good yeah um but yeah i know some people can just kind of watch documentary after documentary that's i'm not that kind of guy but um yeah this one is very very uh very i mean fun to watch is not the right word at all look i'm it's not gonna lie it's entertaining the music that's provided by quest love and the roots it's um, really good it, it just helps like yeah yeah, it just, yeah yeah it's great like it just does mm. a great job of putting this stuff and capturing the sound yeah. and just introducing it into this effortless effortless kind of experience like expression of um yeah just black power and black kind of celebration um it's yeah it's awesome it's also um you're seeing these clips from the 70s and around there and um because they've kind of essentially taken this out of out of time now it's kind of like you said it's like a time capsule but it's been removed a bit um you're kind of seeing these clips and and it's putting it putting it to you and you're, you're kind of going oh these problems still haven't been fixed yeah (laughs) like what is going on why like it's uh what 50 years later we're still we still got this this stuff 
Yeah, and um, like I, I don't want to paint a picture that it's you know this is heavy heart. It's it's not. No, it's, it's not. It's not like that at all. And it's kind of it's saying all these messages is making you think about that. And there's definitely those moments where, like the interview right at the end um, with uh, after the they've kind of introduced the sort of war on drugs at this time mm. in the late in the kind of mid to late seventies, and they're interviewing the uh, the woman who's living in the one of the projects who was a prostitute. And she's like, oh man, that's 15. Yeah. Like that, those moments do happen. And they are absolutely heartbreaking. But yeah, you've also got people up. in here that are just doing their job and making a change where they can, like the owner of the mm-hmm. Black Book store. Um, oh, he's such a character. I love him so much. He is absolute Ooh. wisdom. Like, so good. Oh, <laughs> that guy, yeah. I, I have so much love for that guy. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump around here. I'm going to talk about a few things. But first mm-hmm. thing I want to talk about is we started talking about Stokely Carmichael. So I want to yeah. kind of jump back to the start of the film, talk about that. The main thing I took away from this film as a whole, as an overview, is the amount of different voices that we've never learned about and the different voices of the Black Power movement and how they're kind of different parts of a spectrum. They're all, the, yeah. all, the, all their ideas are linked, but they're not exactly the same. So you have Stokely Carmichael, who later but goes on to become Kwame Ture, um, after changing his name. And he's talking about a perspective in this clip that's against Martin Luther King's uh, boycotting and non-violence. Let's begin with the modern period of... I guess we could start with 1956 for our generation. This was the beginning of the rise of Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King decided that in Montgomery, Alabama, black people had to pay the same prices on the buses as did white people, but we had to sit in the back. And we could only sit in the back if every available seat was taken by a white person. If a white person was standing, a black person could not sit. So Dr. King and his associates got together and said, this is inhuman. We will boycott your bus system. Now understand what a boycott is. A boycott is a passive act. It is the most passive political act that anyone can commit, a boycott. Because what the boycott was doing was simply saying, we will not ride your buses. No sort of antagonism. He was not even verbally violent. He was peaceful. Dr. King's policy was that nonviolence would achieve the gains for black people in the United States. His major assumption was that if you are nonviolent, if you suffer, your opponent will see your suffering and will be moved to change his heart. That's very good. He only made one fallacious assumption. In order for nonviolence to work, your opponent must have a conscience. The United States has none. Has none. Okay. The first thing that crossed my mind with, with Stokely is, um, you know, as he has so much power and passion and fire inside of him. And he understood what his job was very early. And he understood why, even though the things he was saying were in direct opposition to the philosophy of Dr. King, he understood that Dr. King was still important. He understood the compassion. Um, the What struck me, though, is interesting that from his vantage point, nonviolence and passive resistance was a non-option. 
it wasn't an option at all. Now in 2010, you can see how, you know, King and all of them who were influenced by Gandhi, how it did work, you know? The passive resistance of the bus boycott, it did work. But it would have never worked without people like Stokely Carmichael and others. But yeah, so in that he's saying, like, that boycotting is a passive act, but passivity of boycotting relies on the fact that the person that you're boycotting against has a conscience. And he goes on to say, the America has, the, the United States doesn't have a conscience. So it's, mm. it's, it's like, it's almost pointless. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really interesting to just hear, hear this guy speak. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's kind of similar to the, to the James Baldwin thing that we had where he's, you know, again, coming at it from a different angle that we didn't, we didn't hear previously. Um, and what's even more interesting at this point is that just after this clip that I've talked about, Talib Kweli's talking over this and giving context. And then he's saying about the fact that he was listening to this interview uh, for this film on a plane on his way to JFK, a New York airport, and then gets picked up by the FBI at, like in late 2000s like yeah. in the early 2010s because even in now because he was listening to it wasn't it sorry it wasn't it because he was listening listening it was exactly to that. it was exactly like that he was yeah. because he was listening to this clip they found out he was listening to this clip um even nowadays the fbi are scared of this person's ideas because yeah. they think it's harmful to um to to america and it just goes to show what their priorities are in a way mm. um and he's not even um saying anything extreme no exactly which is scarier you know you could kind of i mean i still no i was gonna say you kind of understand if it was a bit more extreme but no i don't because they shouldn't be listening to anything you you're listening to that's that's up to you look, look um, the way i see it is that in a world where donald trump has a twitter account and like you have all these far-right people that are like putting through all of their kind of hate speech all the time you pick you like you pick someone off off the fbi for listening to an interview of a of a, a guy who's you know just a well-educated man yeah. talking about talking about you know civil rights and stuff in the yeah. 60s what like that doesn't yeah. make any sense it's mad yeah. um but yeah there's oh there's yeah. so much stuff um but yeah man um anything else you kind of want to point to in this film any any, any other talking points you want to you want to um, go around them for just, a while just um sort of going back to my now poorly structured and fragmented segue what Sorry. I was going to say about <laughs> it's not your fault. It's fine. Um, what I what I was going to sort of go on to again with like the education, the were well, the at least I got, and I assumed everyone else got, but at least I got about the civil rights movement was yeah. You learn about Martin Luther King and you learn about Malcolm X, but what they do is they kind of go. So Martin Luther King was the good one, and Malcolm X was the bad one, and that is just not the case at all. But because I got taught that at school, it took me a few years to realize that that wasn't the case. Yeah. And I just, I just got so angry at the fact that I've been spoon fed this bullshit at an early age. And then you, you go and you listen to the clips of Malcolm X and he's not, I mean, he's, he's definitely radical, but he's not like extreme or anything. You know, he's saying, he's saying, you know, this is the, you know, as a last resort, you know, we might have to 
get get pretty serious with with some of this stuff. But he's he's still a very a very clever man. He's still a very um a very you know fluent man in the the, the way that he's he's kind of putting his thoughts across. There's again there's there's not really a hint of extremism about it. It's kind of harsh. It's kind of like a firm but fair approach, you know. And um, I was just so annoyed that that I got kind of guised into believing that he was essentially villainized through in in my education. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was disgusting. It's a it's a it's a lingering idea that's stayed from the FBI. Uh, yeah, kind exactly. of looking uh, outlook of the time of J. Edgar Hoover's kind of bureau. Yeah, um, that's the lens they put to everyone yeah, to look through. Is that these people are the most dangerous? Like these kind of civil rights <laughs> activists are the most dangerous people to the American. Yeah. These um, educated black men are really dangerous <laughs> to the uh, oh, to, the, to the to the American way of life. Basically, they yeah. were being investigated and kind of looked into as if they were terrorists. Mm. Um, and it's it's crazy when you think about it. Um, yeah. I mean, just a little kind of tidbit fact I want to drop in here from research that I've done. Um, would you believe that the most researched um, files in the FBI kind of outlook of civil rights leaders at the time for Martin Luther King and Malcolm X pale in comparison to their files on James Baldwin? Like, what? Can you can you believe that? That just goes to show how much of a threat they thought all these people were. Like, they had... Tons and tons of files, but the one that they focused on and looked at the most, um, as a uh, investigated the most, um, that they have so many records of is James Baldwin. And the reason is because they saw him as a threat because of the way that he could converse and talk to people and just Mm. relate to them, um, in a non threatening, antagonizing way or whatever. That is insane that. They had more files on James Baldwin than Malcolm X. Yeah, I'll send you That's, just just, just like the from their perspective after, um, after we do this. But yeah, it's it's mad. yeah, yeah. I want to see that. But yeah, like when you think about their perspective of like, okay, if I was in the FBI and I didn't want this this stuff like taking any kind of route anywhere, yeah, who would I want to be? You know, keeping a close eye on the most. James Baldwin wouldn't even go anywhere near my head. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. I well, look, I, 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 there's context. There's definitely needs to be provided to what I just said, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of the reasons why there isn't uh, as many files is because conspiracy tinfoil hat on. I reckon the FBI killed both of the Malcolm X and out Martin Luther King or organized it to be done. And so they didn't need to have files going on. But James Baldwin was still alive for a very long time. So. Yeah. Yeah, so they just had a longer record. A longer record, but yeah. hey, that's my... I wonder how many files they have on Kennedy. I don't know. <laughs> Bobby, if, you, if you want to get into assassination conspiracy, Yeah, we are, we are, we are <laughs> going off on a tangent here. I'm so, oh, I'm so glad we live uh, not in America. Um, yeah, we'd probably have FBI at our house right now. Yeah, and someone knocking and be like, what are you doing saying that talking shit. about this? <laughs> Um, yeah, freedom of speech luckily still exists, guys. So we're we're gonna be okay. I hope. More or less, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, so that's what that's 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 my little tidbit for that one. Um, that's insane. Um, is there anything else you kind of want to talk about? There's so much to talk about with the Black Power mixtape. It's so, it's so 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 much. Um, I mean, 
Where 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 are you taking us next on this? Because there's, there's so many little chapters to get into. I want to talk about the black bookstore owner. I mentioned him I mean, previously. He's before, so good. I just want. I just want to listen to his voice. Snapsy legend. What a oh god! I'm just gonna I'm just gonna yep. play the clip. <laughs> Malcolm X was the smartest uneducated. You see, Malcolm X. They could find nobody with no degree of PhD could debate him on truth. And naturally, this country can't stand truth. Now, I was lecturing the other day down in this same cellar, and a gang of little black boys came in. They held up their fists, talking about black power. I said, look, son, I'd like to straighten you out. I said, black is beautiful, but black isn't power. Knowledge is power. For you can be black as a crow, you can be white as snow, and if you don't know and ain't got no dough, you can't go, and that's for sure. The white man that landed here, he came with two great weapons. One is the Bible, and the other was the gun. If it didn't Humble you with the Bible, it crumble you with the gun. And it's still praising the Lord and passing the ammunition all over the world. You know, that's for sure. That is I for love, sure. I love that guy. I love that guy. Did you, um, I hope you play the bit about their praising the Lord and handing out the ammunition. Absolutely. That's my favorite Absolutely. bit. Absolutely. I love that. Um, it's, just, it's just this guy like just in his store and he is surrounded by books it's like it's like a bloody like Diagon Alley type shop just the amount of books that are just surrounding him in this place is amazing it's like both a throne of books but he's crumbling <laughs> under the weight of the books like they look like they're gonna fall off the shelves there's so many of them this is oh, he's just so good but he has this confidence and this swagger and it's just like this old wise man sort of thing and this this way about him when he's just talking he's just like he's just telling it he's just telling it how yeah. it is yeah and i love and it's just it. off the cuff uh oh yeah he's so good yeah. so cool um yeah like why yeah. don't we have that man like why don't we have bookstores like that where we are well i know why it's well good. i don't think uh i mean I mean, I don't think you're going to get it anywhere nowadays, but I, I think I put that down to um, people losing their sense of community. Yeah. Really, like, I mean, I mean, like all over the world, you, you're not getting that anymore, unfortunately. Maybe in, in some, some lucky place somewhere. But it's all being replaced by Amazon. Pretty much. Mm. Yeah, it's hard to stop the machine. Damn it. But I just, yeah, man, I just, I love, I love this guy. I just love the way that he talks. I love his poems. Oh, I just love it. Yeah, yeah, he's he's incredible. Um, yeah, I I I don't even have anything else to say about him. I just think he's really cool. <laughs> just I really, I really had like to him. play it, man. I don't. Yeah, he's so I don't have good. Any other things? I just had to play it. But I think I think people understand that. People know that now that they've heard it. People like, get it. Fair yeah. play. Yeah. This guy's great. Guy's a legend. Um, yeah, I I'd like to get onto the. Uh, Angela Davis stuff. If you want to go there, yeah, man, yeah, I'll, there. Go there. I'll go there. Um, Stay the because, I mean, like I said before, I and I felt this especially with the Angela Davis stuff. It was all the, I mean, ninety percent of the footage they showed of Angela Davis was all stuff that I had seen before, like you know, famous clips of her. Mm-hmm. 
But the fact that you, when you think about it's a, um, a Swedish group of, of people making their show, I, I find that very interesting. Um, that those are the, are the, the, essentially the best clips or what we've at least deemed to be the best clips of Angela Davis. It's like, where's all the, you know, the clips from, from America about yeah. her. You know yeah. what I mean? Yes. Yeah. There's just something, there's something weird about it the whole time. I just had this feeling of unease about how come these Swedish people have the, essentially the monopoly on the, the civil rights clips that I know about. Yeah, but the question is, more: how do you get there? Do you get there by confrontation, violence? Oh, is that the question you were asking? Yeah. See, that's, I mean, that's another thing. When you talk about a revolution, most people think violence. Um, without realizing that the real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the, in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving for, not in the way you reach them. On the other hand, uh, because of the way this society is organized, because of the violence that exists on the surface everywhere, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. You have to expect things like that as reactions. If you are a black person and live in, 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 in the black community all your life and walk out on the street every day seeing white policemen surrounding you, I, when I was living in Los Angeles, for instance, long before the situation in L.A. ever occurred, uh, I was constantly stopped. No, the, the, the police didn't know who I, who I was, but I was a black woman. I had a, had a natural, and, and they, I suppose, thought that I might be a, quote, militant. And when you live under a situation like that constantly, um, uh, and, then, and then you ask me, you know, whether I approve of violence. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, whether I approve of guns. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, some very, very good friends of mine were killed by bombs, bombs that were planted by racists. Uh, I remember from, from the time I was very small, I remember the sounds of bombs exploding across the street, our house shaking. I remember my father having to have guns at his disposal at all times because of the fact that at any moment uh, uh, someone we, we might expect to be attacked. The man who was at that time in con complete control of the city government, his name was Bull Connor, uh, would often get on the radio and make statements like, uh, 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 niggas have moved into a white neighborhood, uh, we better expect some bloodshed tonight. And sure enough, there would be bloodshed. Uh, after the four young girls who were, who lived very, who lived, one of them lived uh, next door to me. Um, I was very good friends with the sister of, of another one. My, my sister was very good friends with all three of them. My mother taught one of them in her class. My mother, in fact, when the bombing occurred, one of the mothers of, uh, one of the young girls called my mother and said, uh, can you take me down to the church to pick up uh, Carol, I, you know, we heard about the bombing, and I, and I don't have my car. And they went down, and what did they find? They found limbs and heads strewn all over the place. And then after that, uh, in my neighborhood, all of the men organized themselves into an armed patrol. They had to take their guns and patrol our community every night because they did not want that to happen again. I mean, that's why when someone asked me about violence, uh, uh, 
I just, uh, I just find it incredible. It, because it, what it means is that the person who's asking that question has absolutely no idea what black people have gone through, what black people have experienced in this country since the time the first black person was kidnapped from the shores of Africa. Very strange. So, very, like very it's strange. like a suppression of information you feel from these kind of leaders and stuff. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying like anyone in particular is is that noise was my cat knocking stuff off my desk. That's cool. Uh, I'm not saying that this is like you know someone you know a specific individual group doing this on purpose. I mean, I I don't know whether that's true or not, but it does. There's just something odd going on. That these are all the clips that I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and they're they're from Swedish filmmakers. I just find that very strange. Um, but to to go on uh, with Angela Davis is just the the just the absolute balls of this woman. She's amazing. <laughs> I love her so much. Yeah. Um, there's obviously that famous clip of her going into. Uh, trial in court and um, you know they they mentioned in the film that it you know of that time if you were like a, a black woman going into trial usually you'd kind of you know flatten your hair down um, you know put on a suit or something and she comes in just the biggest afro ever throws up the fist in the air she walks in um, and, and I mean essentially gets her thrown out of court because she just she, again an intelligent intelligent black person who and and again this is their their worst enemy their public enemies mm-hmm. are these just these people who i mean essentially just people who know their rights yeah exactly or at least the rights that they deserve <clears throat> that yeah. should be given to them so my experience with angela davis has been a little bit less like i i know i've seen the famous clips and stuff that, mm. that we're referencing and um, also some talks more recently um, of her talking out about stuff that's going on now, some talks about social justice where in terms of uh, racism and work that she's done quite recently. Yeah. There's a talk that she did with Jane Elliott um, where they discussed uh, race and privilege, and it's one of the best talks on privilege that I, I've seen. It was um, absolutely great. Mm. But they... But yeah, she, this it just seeing these kind of these clips and stuff about um, her trial and everything that's going on, and then learning that you know she she argued her trial herself and was able to win. It's yeah, just amazing. Uh, it's just um, like it's just awesome. And then later on, they try and get her for like um, you know possessing a, a firearm. Yeah, and then it turns out it's not. It wasn't even hers. Yeah, and she, and she she would you know she wasn't uh, holding it either. Um, it's just it does a great job of lifting the mask of what the government was uh, parading around at <laughs> this time, you know. And that being said, that that, what, that something they make clear in this film as well is that this isn't shown to be like a real transparent lens of what these people were like in their inner act, mm. and they're in a kind of uh beings and thoughts and ideas as it were it's just it's also like we're being shown this through a um through the perspective of these swedish filmmakers who have their own ideas and their own agenda and perspectives of the narrative they want to put across 
So it doesn't, you know, it's not trying to be extremely transparent and showing all the slides because they, while the, while the information they, they provide is quite transparent and we're just seeing these interviews, there is an innate kind of different dynamic because we're watching these four, five, you know, 10 filmmakers, um, like just all interview these kind of black activists who are all, um, uh, and all these filmmakers are just blonde haired, blue eyed Swedish people. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) So yeah, yeah. there's that whole, and they're asking these questions. So there's that whole dynamic there as well. Um, yeah, just wanted to, point that out as well yeah i think that's great um yeah there's there's also some like really there's some some clips in here just really heartwarming like there's that bit um where i can't remember if it's stokely carmichael or if it's meg revers but they're interviewing his mother and he's next to i knew you i was thinking the exact same thing i was waiting for you to put the uh, love and there's like there's obviously a bit of a language barrier because of these Swedish guys and he's like do you want do you want me to interview my mum for you and they're like oh yes please <laughs> and um and he does it and it's 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 incredible it's it's a very it's a very um emotional part of the film it, I mean it was for me it was I thought it was very moving and at the same time Stokely's uh interview it was he's, Stokely but he's he's okay. he's he's pushing it. He's pushing it on his mum. Like he keeps asking the same question over and over. He's not going easy on her. Yeah. He's going, why, why, why? Mm -hmm. Until he gets to the, the thing of like why they moved, why they were segregated, why, you know, they had this different experience, blah, blah, blah. And then it's because they were black. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a different experience. And, uh, watching one of these leaders, uh, just interview their own, mother is just it's interesting to say the least yeah it, yeah it really was um and i think um I, w- I was watching an interview the other day and i can't remember who was on it so that's um that's a shame but um whoever it was uh she was very eloquent in what she said and she was talking about this kind of stuff and she said you know the the, the other thing to remember with all this is that as much as it is a racism issue, it is also a class issue. And there's no coincidence that those things go hand in hand in America. Yeah. And I just thought that was a very good summing up of that kind of thing. I just, you just reminded me of that because you were talking about, you know, why they had to move, blah, 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 blah. Um, but I just, I just thought that was, that was very um, insightful as well. And, and that's also the case here in, in Britain where I, I would argue I would argue here that um, the, the the same kind of things apply more kind of behind closed doors, but the class oppression side of it is definitely more prevalent. Mm-hmm. It's more it's it's more weaponized against class oppression, but it's yes. uh, the racism here is more subtle. Um, it's a shame, yeah, because I saying. feel that these um, issues is aren't really something that I've found. Um, like sort of documentaries and stuff yet at least that really dive deep and discuss this in film the information mm. that's out there is much more available in um literary media and books and stuff yeah. if you're interested in learning more about britain's ex- britain's experience with uh racism colonialism and imperialism and um how that structure kind of intersects with class and uh and and gender and stuff i'd recommend checking out rennie edo lodge's book why i'm not talking to what 
white people about race and Akala's book natives they do a really good job about talking about the history of britain specifically mm. but i'm i'm still looking for that film i'm still looking for that documentary to talk yeah, about doesn't really... britain's imperialism because it's not something that gets discussed about enough really yeah and it's a shame because i would love to have that conversation with you on here because well well we have more of a reference for it i mean we grew up here yeah you know um and uh yeah i'm you know i'm sure we i'm sure we can talk about it but it's 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 strange that there just hasn't been yeah that kind of film for britain and there's so much history here like that that you could i mean even in recent history you can think of like you know the jamaicans moving over here um you know with the yardies and all that stuff I mean, that's, that's pretty, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, relatively recent, I suppose, but that's an, an interesting aspect. I haven't really, I haven't really seen get covered anywhere. There is, um, there is a Windrush, uh, sort of documentary that's out that my friend Izzy kind of pointed me towards. So maybe we can talk about that, mm. uh, at some point, but yeah, I'd like to touch on it at least. You know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's so much, there's so much in terms of, information that's out there and stuff that we don't learn about or talk about and i'd really love to have that conversation with you at some point because obviously we have uh different experiences uh yeah and i feel like we could bring some some anecdotes to the table with that yeah i i I like you know um a lot of people have my own experience with racism in britain and whatever being a mixed race uh like you know Colombian, French, European, Asian, uh, uh, kind of mixed race person. Um, and a powerful mix. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's, it's other, isn't it? It's everything. Um, but so, and I'm not saying that that's kind of to similar to, or anything like the, the black experience of being black and British in Britain. Um, but it's, it's my own experiences with that here. Um, and that's why I'm not really talking about in this podcast or anything about myself or my own experiences with racism, whatever, because that's not really what's important here. It's well, it's removed from the civil rights. It's removed from the civil rights. That's why this is episode specifically about the specific, like civil rights movements and, um, those black power leaders and stuff, because I don't have a frame of reference for this period of time and these influences. And I'm just looking to, educate myself and hopefully others in the best sort of light and way possible and raise these voices. Cause I think they need to be raised. Um, and speaking of marginalized groups and raised voices, mm. um, I'm going to touch on this cause I think we're not done talking about the black power mixtape, even though we could, no. we could probably talk about this for forever. <laughs> like it's such a good movie. <laughs> um, but I'm going to briefly touch on a, a couple of other films that we that i watched um mm-hmm. and these these beca- comes out of a conversation that we had me and you lester um mm-hmm. when we after we went to a protest in brighton um and the conversation was about what was going on and a, a march that had happened in um in america for specifically the black trans movement and it was about black trans civil rights and the question that arises is what is uh, does that not come under black lives matter what is the significance of black trans lives so i really wanted to educate myself yeah. on that particular question because yeah. 
I'd like to hear it as well because it, I mean, I you know the question came from me anyway. We finished the the the, the protest, and I'd noticed these boards around, and I didn't say it was spy or anything. I was genuinely just asking a question. I was like, well, why does that particular group need to be separated from the larger whole? And in a way, isn't that kind of self segregation and maybe a bit regressive in the way that I kind of saw it? And so I disagreed with you on the regression term, but at the time I didn't have the knowledge to properly argue against you of why I thought that wasn't right and why I thought it was important Mm. to have a black lives, uh, a black trans lives matter march. Um, So I uh, did some research. I watched a couple of films and I think we should come back to the black power minister because there's probably a couple of things. Yeah. yeah, We'll circle back. We'll circle back. But um, I just want to highlight a couple of films and stuff that I watched that really, really educated me on the trans experience, um, the transsexual experience and also um, the, the black trans experience as well uh i watched a documentary called this is this the by the way everything that we have talked about so far in some form is available for free so you can check all of these out on netflix or on um uh, amazon prime in the case of black power mixtape or youtube that's available on youtube as well um and yeah bbc iplayer in this in the form of i'm not your negro but yeah, so I watched a documentary called The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson. Marsha P. Johnson was a transsexual black woman and an advocate for the gay liberation movement in the 1960s and 70s. So she was one of the gay rights movement. She was uh, one of the icons in the gay rights movement. She was f- quite famous. Like she had friends. She was like friends with like Andy Warhol and uh, stuff like that. And quite big in the 1960s, especially in the LGBTQ community. Self-described as a street queen um, of New York's gay ghetto and founded the trans uh, transvestites action revolutionaries with fellow luminary Sylvia Rivera, Rivera, Rivera. Um, when Johnson's body was found in the Hudson River in 1992, police called it a suicide and didn't investigate. And David Francis' new documentary, the trans activist Victoria Cruz, seeks to uncover the truth of her death while celebrating her legacy as well. Um, This film does a really, really good job of just kind of giving you some information about the sort of person that Marsha P. Johnson was um, and also giving you some context and background of the the trans movement and the gay gay rights movement in the 1960s. Because even in the LGBTQ community, community, um, the, the transvestites were the... Uh, the transsexuals were the most oppressed group in their in that um, group of oppressed groups. Uh, I'm not so exactly. like not even like gays and lesbians and stuff. Really yeah, well, there's a clip much. in in uh, that I haven't um, I haven't kind of singled out for this because um, it's 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 fairly long, but it's of uh, Marsha's friend Sylvia Rivera who goes to the gay liberation movement. It's after gay. Uh, it's after the um, it's after they passed the act uh, for uh, gay rights. And so mm-hmm. um, there was a lot of uproar because they had um, this uh, transsexual come, uh, come up onto the screen. She fought for her place to go and talk. And she said she goes and talks because they essentially what happened was after they passed certain legislation for gay rights and lesbian rights, 
um, the LGBTQ community, kind of the transsexual community, felt very left behind by um, by uh, the gay and the uh, a lesbian community at the time, and they were like really because they fought so hard. Like Marsha and Sylvia were some of the starters of the gay liberation movement in the 1960s and fought again uh, in Stonewall and did all of this stuff. Mm. But when this legislation passed, they were still oppressed. Right, uh, I see. People weren't standing up for their rights because they'd been given some form of legislation, some form of acceptance, and then were leaving trans people behind. Yeah. Um. So that sort of thing. Um, it's interesting. It's it's interesting, exactly. But especially when you're talking about things like the Black Lives Matter movement, Black trans lives, like that's two intersectional groups of oppression right there. And yeah. even within yeah. the Black community, trans people are disproportionately affected of um, violent crime. And that goes on to, you know, our experiences with um, their representation in media and goes on to talk about another documentary that I watched. But mainly, that's why it's important that we raise these all intersectional voices of this movement, and it's mm. why these. It's why it's so important that we kind of we do our best to raise these voices and to hear people from all sides of the community. Um, yeah, because because uh, no, I'll, I'll keep running for one second. But <laughs> um, another thing that happened during this time was that the feminist movement were critical of trans people because of their they were seeing them as denying, um, basically, kind of impersonating or denying um, the the female uh, the kind of the female body of the experience. They saw it as like mocking the the female body, which is totally not what that's about. Yeah, um, right, but yeah, yeah, so even, you know, feminists at the time were critical of transsexuals and trans people as well. So mm -hmm. while this focuses solely on Marsha and her, um, her uh, kind of investigation for her, what's happened around the circumstances of her death, which is not yeah. unusual not stuff that happens to all, to black people even now, um, in the, in, in the world that we're living in where people are quite obviously there's circumstances around their deaths and they're being marked off by police as suicides. Um, it's, it does a really good job of showing you the context and yeah. educating you around that. So I'd very much recommend checking that out. Um, mm. Yeah. There's some, um, you just kind of uh, put, a, put a little thought in my head with that as well, because there's sometimes you hear um, people who are arguing against um, trans people being able to, you know, do their transition and whatever. And one of the arguments that they usually bring up is that the suicide rate for trans people is so high and then, then they, they claim that that suicide rate doesn't lower once they've transitioned. But that data is going to be so skewed by police writing these things off as suicides. Yeah, and not wanting to investigate is, these, these, these yeah, cases. Exactly. So that's really interesting. Um, that sounds like a good uh, little rabbit hole to go down, actually. That sounds, that sounds really interesting. Really, really interesting. Um, so, And I suppose it kind of, again... Um, perhaps on a more extreme extent, but it comes back around to that James Baldwin thing of saying, you know, um, not only was he, you know, a black person, but he was gay as well. And that meant that even his community didn't really like him being gay. Yeah. 
you know, it's kind of that, isn't it? You're, you're so, you don't really belong to, to any part of a community whole as a whole. Yeah. And that's crazy. Yeah. Um, cause that sucks and no one should feel like that, but yeah, that's, that is, that is interesting. And I appreciate you doing some research on that. Cause I genuinely, I was genuinely curious and I know like the thing is questions like that. If you ask them, people can maybe think that you're asking them in, in a venomous way. Mm-hmm. But with me, it's just like, I just want to know. I just want like, I just want to, you know, I just want more information so I can. And I know, I know, like, I know you it. well enough to know. Yeah, that's why I asked you, you know, if I, if I, if I went up to someone in that protest yeah. and said that, yeah. Yeah. I'd probably get run out of town. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because they'd take it the wrong way. And you know, it's, it's a, well, it's a heated environment anyway, being in a, in a protest. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I just, I just thought. But that's why I appreciate it. And that, that's why like the basis of our friendship are these like big conversations that we have around all of, all of these different ideas and things and stuff. So mm. it just really prompted me to really want to learn and just put into different perspectives from this issue. Cause I'd realized that all the learning that I had been doing had been either from the male or female black experience in America and yeah. in, um, uh in the in the uk but i hadn't looked mm. outside of that reach into the lgbtq community and to see their perspectives on it and it, we need to be intersectional into our in our anti-racism education so that we can really get a full perspective about how these issues affect everyone um yeah so yeah so there's there's that and that was really really interesting um gonna quickly play a clip from that film where it talks about Marsha and uh her rights um but yeah, I'll, I'll jump back in with another. Darling, I want my gay rights now. I think it's about time the gay brothers and sisters got their rights. And especially the women. Marsha was very good-natured. She was funny. She laughed. But that shouldn't be mistaken for a lack of serious purpose and political intent. Her mission in life is going about spreading peace and goodwill, giving license to, you don't have to be dressed up in a suit. You can express yourself. She became, to me, like a bodhisattva, a holy person who would wander the village in whatever adornment she wanted, uh, being at peace. How will this affect your your job? Darling, I don't have a job. I'm on welfare. I had no intention of getting a job as long as this country discriminates against homosexuals. Okay, moving on in this massive tangent that I'm talking about at the moment that's what we do best um i'm gonna in this big ta- in this big tangent i'm of, edu- of educating myself and hopefully others i'm yep. uh, checked out another documentary that's uh, kind of on netflix at the moment called disclosure and okay. i'll read you the synopsis but essentially it is all about trans representation in media from the inception of movies to stuff that's being made now. Um, and I found it so fascinating hearing these incredible men and women talk about movies and talk about representation on screen. Cause it is so crazy. The stuff that they're talk- talking about. So, um, okay. Let me read you this, uh, 
Uh, let me read you this description. Okay, according to a study from Glad, over eighty percent of Americans don't who, who personally. Is, who's Glad? Glad is an association of. Uh, I didn't actually get what they stood for, so bear with me while I quickly do okay. some. Just for context, I know context research. Yeah, I like to know where my sources are coming from. Uh, uh, yeah, so Glad is a. Glad is a, a sort of American non-governmental media a monitoring organization founded by LGBT people in the media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I knew that that's what it was, yeah. but um, it stands for Gay and Lesbian yeah. Alliance Against Defam- Defamation. Okay. Uh, so that's context. Um, so yeah, so according to a study from Glad, over 80% of Americans don't personally know someone who's transgender. That means that most people learn from trans people uh, learn from trans people learn. from the ways that they're depicted. Um, learn about trans people, sorry, from the ways that they're depicted yeah. in movies and TV. From executive producer Laverne Cox and director Sam Fender comes Disclosure, a documentary that chronicles a hundred years of trans representation on screen from silent film to Dog Day Afternoon, the four year old version to Pose. And there's there's so many great moments in this documentary and informative, heartbreaking, and just shocking moments in this documentary of just hearing these incredible people speak about their experiences, but also working in media because a lot of these people are trans people that are writers, actors, producers, and that have made stuff like um, Lily Wachowski talks uh, talks in a little clip that I'm about to play. Um, so. In this uh, clip, there's a scene where trans people in Hollywood are talking about D.W. Griffith, who is credited as being the father of cinema, basically, making the first feature film. Inherently, one of the most racist people ever. Like, he is credited for basically spreading propaganda of the Ku Klux Klan. They covered that on 13th as well, which we'll talk about next week. Yes, exactly. They did yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. it. Um, but yeah, yeah. The one. they talk about D.W. Griffiths in cinema. And it's an, they're, what they're talking about is an argument that I don't hear enough of. Uh, so here we have Susan Stryker, uh, Yance Ford, and Brian Michael Smith, and Lily Wachowski discussing it in this clip. We've been around since there was uh, footage. You just have to look for us. One of the films that is often credited with inventing what's called the dynamic montage. And that was a D.W. Griffith film. And the story is of Judith of Bethulia, who's a good Jewish woman who lives in Jerusalem. Then the invading army is coming. And Judith, to save the city, pretends to be a concubine of Holofernes, the general. And while she is in his tent, she takes his sword and cuts his head off. There's a claim that this is one of the first films that we know of where the cut in the film is used to advance the story. And there's a kind of like trans or, you know, gender non-binary character who is kind of circulating around the cut in the narrative. It's almost like the figure of the cut trans body, the eunuch who's been castrated or emasculated, who is a cut figure, presides over 
the invention of the cinematic cut. It's like trans and cinema have grown up together. It's like we have always been present on screen and it's not just coincidental. I mean, there's something really deeply connected. Can we all just talk about D.W. Griffith for a minute? As the Missy Elliott song would say, we need to just back it up for a minute. The fact that we study and teach D.W. Griffith without saying a word about the representation, like, I'm glad I didn't go to film school. Because if I had seen Birth of a Nation, when they got to that blackface moment, when this guy springs up from behind a bush wanting to rape the white woman, I, that would have been it for me at, at film school, right? That, that would have been my last day. Not only is D.W. Griffith incredibly racist, but he understands that you can turn gender non-conforming people into the joke of your story. It's like, oh yeah, great, D.W. Griffith, you, you know, racist piece of shit. You, you've invented the stereotype in film, well done. If you look at that early silent film, A Florida Enchantment, it foregrounds questions of gender change. And using blackface while you're using gendered cross-dressing, you know, just like it's these sort of twin fascinations that, you know, they're always sort of tangled up with each other somehow. It's interesting when you look at things historically, you know, in terms of trans-masculine experience. Like, you know, the, first, there's no such vocabulary back in the day of, of trans anything. In the floor and she eats a seed and then like, voila, she, she wakes up, she's a man. And, you know, not only were we looking at gender expression, but then also the racist expectations. So the white person becomes this high society dandy, like the ideal of what a man should be. But then her handmaid is forced to take the seat. She becomes this aggressive valet who's violent. And so even in this gender transgressive fantasy, you still have white characters in blackface playing these horribly fantastical versions of black people. There are lots of ugly things about our history that feel like an assault, I think. But I think we have to know them. I think we have to learn them. Okay, so basically in that clip, uh, just for context, they're talking about how in film school you'd look about or look at all the stuff that he uh, did, creating, editing, cross-cutting, all of this stuff, but no one ever fucking mentions how much of a racist this guy was. And like the subliminal and so aspect of his so if you were a black person, let alone a black trans person, mm. coming into film school, learning about this stuff, one of the people, Nance Ford, basically just goes, that'll be my last day of film school. Like, I'd just walk out right there. Like, you're not going to make me write about and talk about this guy without br talking that and bringing that. So they make them do like essays and stuff on this guy. Yeah, people in film school, it's quite a common thing to talk about the, like the history of film and this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, I mean, and I don't know why, I don't understand why you can't do an essay on the techniques employed from that and leave that 
guy out of it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even though he came up with it, it's like, we're talking about the techniques here. We don't need to talk about this piece of shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Like we all know what he's doing. So at the same time as he's employing all of these ideas in film, he's also credited with introducing the idea of a trans person as the joke of the film as someone that's right. going to be introduced as a character that we can laugh at through the struggle and their strife of... It's like a man in a dress, Yeah, pretty basically. much, yeah, the, yeah through yeah. their experience. And I'll, um, I'll, uh, I'll send you this clip so you, can, so you can have a look at it. But basically, yeah, it's mm-hmm. kind of... He's also credited for saying, look at this person. Look at how we right. can laugh at them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because they are because they are less than they are less than human just the same way that they would talk about they are the black people are less than human or whatever establishing a hierarchy of comedy yeah I suppose. oh man like just it's fascinating and it fills me with so much rage that i have to like calm down and yeah. stop from clipping the microphone which i'm sure i've done a couple of times already sorry audience um but yeah so yeah it's just it's it's fascinating and i very much recommend that you guys check out this um this documentary because it's really mm. it's it's an element of exp- experience that we don't hear about and that i didn't know about and just the this the amount of representation here that we learn through media it's so important and it just goes to show why stories and hearing from different perspectives is so important like we're going to talk more about this yeah. next week with um ava duvernay and stuff but hearing different people's perspectives about their uh, and seeing their honest truths on screen is so 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 important because not only does that inform others about representation and how we should see these people, but also it informs it, these people that they're not alone and that they're not other. They're not different. They are fine and beautiful just the way they are, you know? And it gives them a chance to relate. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, it, yeah, it really comes, comes back to that, that thing you read out. I'm glad at the start, you know, if you've never talked to someone of a different, you know, a different, uh, you know, background of anything, like any, like whether trans, gay, black, white, whatever, like if you've never come into contact with someone like that, then it's true. Like you're only going to have an opinion on them based on what people are telling you rather than your intimate experience, you know, with that person. And if every representation of a trans person that you're seeing is someone it's that's bad. dead on CSI or a, or someone yeah, that's a yeah. sex worker, um, yeah. that's not, um, that's, you know, kind of on drugs or whatever. And mm-hmm. just, yeah, not, not a true kind of representation of that person as a whole. It's, yeah. it's going to inform the way that you think about people. Yeah, of course it is. And, and at, I mean, at a certain stage, if you've been, fed that much and you have no actual life experience with someone like that i mean you can barely blame them for thinking like that it's just been i mean it's essentially brainwashing you know Um, so there's a really really interesting fact that the last thing i want to touch on with this documentary and then we can kind of run back around talk about final thoughts with everything that we've talked about today but um yeah the thing i wanted to bear in mind is this the fact that actually uh i like kind of blew my mind scared me and fascinated me all at once so 
there's a history in award seasons, particularly Oscars and things like that, where we see the performance of um, a transsexual as Oscar worthy and oftentimes are winning awards. I'm looking at you, Dustin Hoffman and Tootsie. I'm looking at you, Eddie Redmayne. What is that? And the Danish girl. But this narrative uh, and Jared Leto as well in Dallas Bowers Club, this narrative of seeing a man dress up as a woman, then accept an award in his uh, true quote marks sort of uh, male form, subconsciously feeds into the narrative that being a transsexual is a performance that they talked about in this film. So it... Yeah, that's true. So while, while we're looking at and applauding this, we're applauding people... Uh, for their tra- performance as a transsexual person. Um, so while while we could be just employing transsexuals in media and film and stuff, because they don't have to act that part, but this idea that we're feeding uh, the narrative of the transsexual as a performance and awarding them for that feeds into the narrative that plays into fear and violence against transsexuals because it's in our minds, in our subconscious minds, we're seeing it as a performance because all of these people have won awards, blah, blah, blah. They explain it better in the documentary than I'm doing now. Um, but it was, it's a fact that kind of blew my mind because I never thought about it like that. I never thought about seeing these people accept these awards for these roles and then us subconsciously looking at that scene of that person accepting that award as well done for pretending to be another sex. And it feeds into the narrative of a transsexual being someone that's pretending to be something else. Yeah, I think if I to play devil's advocate, because I know I know what the obvious uh, argument would be against that is that people will say, well, you know, they're actors, that's their job to to honor performance of being other than themselves. But um, it's kind of like, you know, would you applaud? Would you applaud? Um, like, a, a, would you applaud Jared Leto for playing a, a black character? Yeah. It's, it's that kind of thing. It's, it's not as, and it's kind of a bit, it's a bit harder to distinguish because it's not about something so easily, um, so, so as easy as appearance, because it is kind of more of a, more of a, a, a subtlety, but it's that kind of thing where it's, you're playing, you're playing a minority if you're not kind of well, thing. And yeah. And that, argu- you know, we that, don't do blackface anymore. So why are we doing that this? argument has been made in Hollywood and stuff in the past. And, but the, the, the yeah, counter exactly. to that devil's advocate argument I would put is that if you hire a transsexual or a trans actor or something to, to play that role of a trans person, they mm. are not only seeing uh, themselves and it sends out a sort of wider message, but you, they don't have to act that. They don't have to try and act as a transsexual. They can look at other aspects of they the character. They can just act as the character. And yeah. see that character yeah. as a human being as a whole. That's true. Than just being mm-hmm. an impression or a, a or a very, you know, a great in, a, 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 a imitation of, of, a tra- of a trans person. Yeah. But then by that, so I'm just, I'm just throwing things out because it's coming into my, into my head. Um, but by, so by that reasoning, would you, um, not want a, a trans person playing a non-trans person in a film. I don't know. 
and I think it needs to be it needs yeah. to it needs context and it needs to um it needs to fit into the role. I don't see why, yeah. you know, the same way in Hollywood we change people's uh hair color or uh skin color or whatever for for certain roles once we see a performance that fits and captures the essence of that character, why it couldn't be a trans character if there's if there someone's being hired for that. What I'm what I'm saying is that having these uh roles accepted by actors in uh their cis gender form sends a message to to a wider audience that this is this this was a performance type thing you know what i mean it was just an act um yeah i understand that um but then when you flip it it's the same thing backwards isn't it so would you say that um you know and i, and I agree that that should be the rule but then i think you know, that rule needs to apply to everyone in that case, which is kind of a, a a more difficult kind of thing to say because then you're essentially telling this marginalized group that there are certain things you can't do as mm-hmm. well, which um, is where it gets very complicated. But I think, um, and, I, and I'm, I'm on board with like trans people playing trans people for sure. But I think if we're, I'm just, I, I, I'm a big... <sighs> I've got a big thing for like, you know, if we're ever going to get to some kind of equality or fairness, then it does need to be true equality and true fairness. And that comes with, that doesn't mean you get the good parts and and you only get the good yeah, parts. Yeah, no, right? I understand that. I think that, you know, if it's, if it's not a specific uh, to trans role, then the role should be mm. uh, opened to, to, to all, yeah. to all people of and, all. And I would, I would, I would also like argue against myself and say it should just be the best, person for the job i'm not saying well you know a trans person can't play it because the character's not trans i'm i'm not saying that at all i'm saying it should be just be the best person for the role yeah. um but but it, you know if we're going to put these kind of things in place and it needs to be on both sides francis mcdonald made us uh made a speech uh about something called an inclusion clause and that would uh, mm. uh basically is a writer and a clause that means that if they're going to be in a film or be in a role that there needs to be an inclusive environment and i Mm. think that's a step towards positive change in hollywood yeah um and yeah what what i'm saying is that if it's not a role that's a specific story about the transsexual experience then the role should be opened to the best performance and cast a wider net because when it's I not see, i see what you're saying when, when it's not specifically yeah, yeah. uh mm-hmm. outright outrightly said uh the common yeah. misconception mm-hmm. in casting is that it's just a it, it's it's a white person or it's blunted I see, I see what you're saying now you're saying it's more it's not if the character in the story if their sexuality or anything else has nothing to do with that story then it doesn't matter who's playing that's that exactly character. what i'm saying yeah 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 no i'm i'm all for that i'm all for that for sure Definitely. And that, that comes down to being the best person for yeah. the role. Yeah. So no, yeah, we're on the same, we're on the same page. page. I'm just uh, Definitely. saying it differently, but yeah, I very much recommend checking out those two documentaries. I know mm. I'm just wax and lyrical cause I have seen this and just basically talking at you. So sorry about that for the past 20 minutes, but no, um, I found it interesting, but, but we've had a little debate, but yeah, so I'm, <laughs> yeah. I, I very much highly recommend it. If you're interested in another perspective of this issue, then check out those two yeah. documentaries cause they're both available on Netflix and they are, very informative and great.
Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, mate, any final thoughts? Anything you want to kind of swing back around at? We're 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 doing good for time, but I just want to just want to swing back around and just kind of scoop up any ideas or things that you want to kind of shed a light on. How how far in are we? Because I got some stuff, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. It's all good, man. Say what you need to say. Well, I just because we haven't really touched on with the Black Power Movement mixtape, we very barely touched on the actual Black Panthers, and um, alongside that, uh, Farrakhan as well, which I found very interesting too, because there's a couple of clips in there. Um, there's one which. Um, it's strange. It's a it's a a group of um, I don't know how how old they are, but they're they they're young, they they're kids, um, and they're saying instead of like saying the um, what's the thing you have to say to the American flag when you're in school? I remember what it is. Oh, pledge of allegiance. Yeah. So instead of saying that, they're saying like a black power version uh, version of that, and they're talking about um, guns and stuff, and they're kind of teaching them how to be responsible with guns. And it's strange because if you didn't, if you had that clip happening outside of America, I'd probably be quite uncomfortable seeing it. But when I'm seeing it in America, I'm like, well, policemen have guns. So, you know what I mean? I just found it very strange that if that was kind of in a different context, that that might be concerning to me. But when it's in the context within that country where, um, guns are widely available and stuff. It's like, well, you know, if, if someone's going to get their hands on a gun, then they should know how to use it responsibly at least. And, and it's, I, I found it, I found it interesting that I didn't have a problem with that scene. You know what I mean? I want to point out an interesting fact here that we haven't really, uh, that I recently learned. Um, Mm. I think they talked about it in 13th, so we'll probably touch on it, uh, next week. Yeah. But, the one time the NRA has ever opposed a dem- public demonstration using um, firearms was when yeah. the Black Panthers occupied City Hall with um, with, a, 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 with, a, with rifles, with AK-47s, I think, or something. Right. And, or, uh, you know, something like that. And they have never, uh, uh, like, kind of... Uh, pub, they usually keep out of it. Yeah, uh, yeah. A, a demonstration well using, um, yeah, using force. So using not force, mm-hmm. using you know, using demonstration, using firearms. Um, so yeah. yeah, I just found that really, really interesting. Talking about what you're talking about, them teaching kids in school That's about guns and stuff, and it's like, it's it's a it's a microcosm for the structural institutions that don't want these people to you know free themselves. Yeah. Well, because I mean that's interesting because it's like we said the NRA the NRA usually stay well out of any. I mean they don't really want to get their hands dirty with anything. I think their hands aren't aren't that clean anyway. They don't want to get more mud on yeah. them, you know. Um, but it's interesting that that is a legal right that you have in that country. But when it comes to um, this particular group, the NRA steps in and disagrees with it. I think that's. Um, and usually, I mean, you know, they're they're there to to promote gun ownership and and all that. They really that any other time they'd probably be very supportive of it. So that's very interesting. Yeah. But I I thought that that clip, just in the context of it, I just thought that was strangely okay with me because I was like, well, 
so so many accidents in America can happen from you know a child getting hold of their parents' gun or whatever that it probably is a good thing to teach them stuff like that from a young age, <laughs> so they know the weight of the thing they're 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 holding. Yeah, you know, um, and it's and I think the the only thing that really saddened me about it is the fact that they're having to teach their kids this stuff and it's you know because it's you know it's taken away the innocence that a child of that age should have but it's kind of necessary in uh the world that they were living in absolutely and if you're interested definitely check out more clips with lewis farrakhan there's a talk there's like a mm. episode where he's on like a an equivalent of like an 80s talk show type thing and he's arguing against uh in in a segregated environment in the uh kind of 60s on a uh on a talk show um mm. the audience is segregated in this in this show yes yeah. so so it's during it's okay. uh, so it's during the civil rights movement but he's yeah, yeah. arguing um about the ideas of the black power movement and racism and institutional kind of privilege and stuff with uh people in the audience and it's absolutely fascinating what? So they're asking him questions, or you yeah, know, they're asking him questions the same way you would in like a talk show in like um that's uh, cool. like question like time, an, like Oprah is the one that's coming up to to mind or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like where they go around the audience and they ask the guest questions or whatever. Um, oh yeah, I'll definitely check that out. It's, cool. Oh, it's so good! It's so good. Uh, and him breaking mm-hmm. down kind of uh, white privilege and stuff um, mm. is yeah, it's fascinating. Cool. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's really the only thing I wanted to touch on just because it's a very striking bit of footage. Cool. Well, yeah, we briefly touched on this, but like like I said, this is going to be a new experiment, a new way of doing things just for this topic because there's so much to cover and we wanted to give you, our listeners, the best and possible kind of overview of stuff that you can check out um, to educate yourselves and to learn Mm -hmm. about stuff. But I think the important thing that we're doing is constantly looking for ways that we can educate ourselves and learn about this topic and um, yeah, look for communities that we have influence in to challenge and to learn um, and just, yeah, help by listening and raising the voices of those that need to be heard. Um, So that being said, um, so yeah, I just want to basically thank you lot for listening to this episode and um, there's going to be some resources in the show notes for anti-racism resources, some books to check out, articles, that sort of thing, videos on YouTube and stuff. Um, have a look at those if you're interested. Shout us on Twitter for any of your ideas um, and just thoughts on this. I'm really, really interested in continuing this conversation um, yeah. as and just hearing people's thoughts. Um and yeah, so I'm at Tarek T. Kawaja on Twitter. Lester, new to Twitter. Do you want to do you want to do you want to throw yours out there? Uh, yeah, I have to look up because I'm. I don't check it that often, but I will check it sometimes. And uh, please feel free to, you know, talk to me. Maybe maybe I pissed you off with some stuff I've said today. That would be nice. We can hash yeah. that out. I'm literally at Lester Gartland, capital L, capital yeah. G. So um, yeah. Shout us on Twitter. We've got at the movie brew as well. You can write us in an email. Um, hello at the movie brew and 
just shout us on various social medias and stuff. Um, but I'm really, really yeah. interested to hear what people think about this and hear their ideas. And if there's any suggestions mm-hmm. that you have, particularly about the British experience, any kind of documentaries and stuff that we that you know about that we need to check out, I'm very interested in that. So that'd be great to... Yeah, I'd really like to get into that to, as well. To hear about that'd that. But yeah, so um, basically, thank you. And um, hope you're all staying safe and catch you later.